everybody. Thank you for joining Week in Washington. Uh, it has been an uh, exciting week with zero progress. <laughs> How's that possible, you ask? Well, it's possible. Um, so let's let's start out at the very beginning really quickly. Um, we have had uh, an exciting week. There has been a lot of news, a lot of press. And what the FLC has kind of come to the conclusion, actually a lot of fanfare and a lot of positivity about something that really didn't come to fruition. Um, and we'd love for to explain that to you right now. Um, and we'd also like to take the opportunity to try to investigate um, what November 3rd means for our policy priorities and what we think um, the ultimate conclusions might be for different outcomes of November 3rd. Now, as we're kind of looking at, uh, the, at, at next week and the week after that, we're looking at our, our um, President Trump has fallen ill and we, we hope for a, a very effective recovery and safe recovery. Um, but we know that things will probably slow down a little bit. And so uh, we will be trying to make sure that we put our finger on policy priorities that might move before then. But for right now, we just wanna give you a little perspective of where we are, what has happened and where we think we're headed. So Maureen, if you could start sharing the slides, that'd be great. So I want to really quickly begin the conversation uh, regarding what's at stake on November 3rd. I know that uh, this week has been hard for a lot of us who are political junkies, that uh, we thought we would have some kind of conclusion or some kind of direction after the presidential election. There's still a lot up in the air right now. Um, but what's important, I think, that we start to investigate and start to uncover is, is, is how a certain policy outlook might look based on certain scenarios and outcomes. So the president, the presidential first presidential debate happened on Tuesday. I'm sure many folks joined in for that, some for the entire thing. And if you made it the whole way through, God bless you. Um, but lots of us didn't quite make it all the way through. Um, we, uh, we can't speculate on Trump and Biden, but I do think there will be daily sort of ebbs and flows of better understanding of the outcome of that. And I think that's something that we take very seriously at GFOA. What a, a huge strategy is, is to make sure that if there is a change in the executive that we are communicating regularly with a transition team. So Biden will come in with a huge transition team trying to, um, of course, understand what his cabinet is going to look like, but also more importantly, like what um, you know, all of his his guidance, his guides inside of the White House are going to be looking like. So, in addition to that, of course, we're still nurturing our relationships with President Trump. So, if you're, um, if you could, everyone could mute, uh, that would be great. Thank you very much. I'm getting a little feedback. Um, so, in order to make sure that we have a um, that we have a that we have a better understanding of where Biden's going. We're certainly making sure that we're reaching out to them in addition to keeping those relationships with the Trump White House right now. But the other fun stuff that is certainly fun to speculate is where in the world is the Senate going? Um, we are fairly certain that we have a House of Representatives that probably will not change from Democratic to Republican. They need to take something like 32 seats that reality is way far out the window right now with the current political environment that we're looking at. But the House of Representatives runs every two years. 
So we may have a house that's very, very, very energetic once the election happens, trying to pump stuff out, as we have seen with Nancy Pelosi introducing the HEROES Act, that was $3.3 trillion, the Invest in America Act. Um, so all of those things are, are current House proposals that are sitting there and waiting, and they are at the starting block and ready to go. So that House conversation is that they're probably going to stay Democratic. The Senate, on the other hand, a lot of folks are speculating that the, it may flip. And what we'd like to do is just talk for you a couple, couple, describe a couple of the battleground states and why folks are thinking that they'll flip and what that means for local government. So I want to ask if Thomas uh, can jump into this conversation. Jump, Thomas can jump into this conversation. What we have is, you know, collecting information from Sabato's crystal ball and 539 and making sure that we have an aggregate information of what we think are the vulnerable Republican seats. Um, this is kind of a, a layout of the map. Um, I'm going to start out in Maine. Maine has Susan Collins. That's probably a name that everybody recognizes, whether or not you live in Maine or not. Susan Collins is uh, always been a very middle of the road Republican. Um, and she's been very proud of that. Now, there have been some controversial de decisions that she's made that have contributed to a potential vulnerability with, um, with, with a state that essentially is a battleground and could flip at any moment. And so Maine is, I think, from the get-go, one of those states that they're kind of looking at that might take a Senate seat. And then Thomas Yep. Yeah, if I, could, if I could add to Maine, um, you know, the, the, the battles with Susan Collins are so decades old at this point. The, the, the war chest that came about the past two years uh, is so huge compared to, relative I should say, to who they're advertising to in, in Maine and to how many people they're trying to get these votes out from. I think Susan Collins, and, and you know, I, I, we say these things uh, uh, with impunity because we are, you know, we, we don't have crystal balls, so anything could go different. I think Susan Collins is probably in, in more trouble than, uh, than the polls that you'll find online are, are gonna say. Um, I, I believe that there's enough money and enough focus on it from the other party to where they're just, they're able to lock in and really focus down on like a jurisdiction, towny level. Uh, I think it's gonna, it's gonna be a, a sort of an assassination job up there uh, in terms of getting her out. There's a lot of grudges um, that have formed in, uh, with with Miss Miss Collins over the years because of those very controversial decisions. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm sure you were going to push this down to North Carolina there, um, which would be a uh, I believe uh, North Carolina. The last time they did anything blue was voting for uh, President Obama uh, back in 2008 uh, or, or 2012, I should say. But now, um, as a result of, you know, just good old fashioned uh, demographic changes, particularly you talk about uh, Raleigh Durham, there's a, there's a more uh, white collar and uh, educated population that grows out uh, of that sort of technology and, and media center. Uh, and actually, you know, some of it spread to the coast a bit. I, I think it's just seeing, you know, good old fashioned demographic shifts and a popular governor is beginning to push uh, that that other Senate seat to to the blue side, and 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 I was saying this to, to Emily on our our, our pre-call to this uh, that you know North Carolina is such a such a sort of a tipping point uh, and a, a bit of a bastion. It is it's sort of the old dividing line of Dixie, if if you will. Uh, that if if that goes on on election night, then that I mean that's a big deal. You know, if if one of the early states goes uh, to Biden and you're going all the way out west, it, it may not even be worth the time because that, that's how big of a deal North Carolina is. 
I remember too, North Carolina has Tom Tillis and Richard Burr. And so you've got a one senator that's been around for 15 years, one that's been around for four. And so, or rather six. So it's very much, uh, they're going to start picking on Tom Tillis, I think, first. Um, and they're cer they certainly think that uh, the Democratic Party certainly thinks that there's some advantage of picking up those seats. Now, let's move on to Iowa. Iowa is the famous battleground state. I know we have Iowans on the call. Um, Senator Grassley is a prized possession um, that that he is the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. He, he rules on all things finance and money. Um, and I don't think it's likely that he would be necessarily going in there. But Joni Ernst is the junior senator from Iowa um, and she's younger. She doesn't have any leadership roles, but she certainly has been making waves as she's gone in. Any thoughts, Thomas? Iowa, yeah, it's like they they always wanted to be different. Uh, the, the Iowa caucus you know, comes to, to our mind. It's in their, their state constitution that their caucus must be the first caucus because um, who, who knows? They, they simply want to be first. And that has for its, the, the whole livelihood of the state created a, a great sort of back and forth purple moderate state. And I never know what's going to happen in Iowa. Anytime <laughs> I have actually tried to know what's going to happen in Iowa, I'm wrong uh, because Iowans don't like to be, they don't want to be predictable. This is uh, one of those cases where um, the the people on TV, your, your Democrats on TV mostly, they're going to start talking about bringing back the big blue wall uh, that got smashed to bits. And Part of that is getting these these Midwestern Great Plains states back in the Senate. Uh, they Democrats desperately want to have someone to point to that they can say, yes, here is our middle of the road, moderate, you know, statesman senator. Uh, they don't want the Senate to be cut up with coastal elites uh, and then filled up in the middle with the other party. You know, they, the Democrats, uh, uh, they live and die by uh, the largest tent that they can make for their party. And that's the way it will, it's just simply always going to be for them. Uh, and, and this is part of that. Losing the blue wall is devastating. Those, those um, beyond the rank and file Democrats, the, the old guard, the vanguard of the Democratic Party, you know, losing Michigan, Wisconsin and, and Minnesota uh, both uh, in the congressional side and the executive side, Iowa, uh, that was a deep, deep burn. Uh, and, and they really, really want it back. Uh, so it's, it's a testimony to the effort that it's, it's a coin flip here. Uh, but again, it's, I, I can never know what's going to happen in Iowa. I see my favorite Iowan actually right up in the top bar. Cindy Harris is on the debt committee. Any thoughts? Yes. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> All right, so we have last battleground state or last up coin, coin, coin toss state is Montana. And what they're talking about there is uh, Steve Daines. So he is, again, a junior senator. He's a Republican. And they're looking at his vulnerability. There's a significant amount of effort in the Democratic Party to try to take Steve Daines' state, Steve Daines' seat. Again, Steve Daines doesn't have a lot of leadership role in the Senate, so I think they find him an easy pick. Now, and it would be um, impossible if it wasn't for the fact that the competition is the former extremely popular governor of Montana, uh, who was a Democrat. Uh, Montana was one of those situations where somehow you know, the, the other side of the party got in for uh, uh, the gubernatorial race, uh, just more proof that politics is all local. Uh, but if it was not him and they begged him to get into the race, uh, but it worked uh, to, to see Montana again this close is even more you know uh, appalling than seeing Iowa this close way more appalling. You know, Mon Montana, um, not the same 
uh, brand of, of Republican or conservative politics that you might find uh, in close to the Midwest of Great Plains. Uh, but they they definitely hook that way. That is, there is the, the, the libertarian, conservative, Republican uh, block is fairly strong there. But again, politics are local. And that governor was very, very uh, popular. That would be just a huge swing uh, for the Democrats to grab Montana. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's there's potential for a lot of change. They have to pick up four seats. Two independents and the Democrats have to pick up four seats. And so that's that's what we're watching for. And as Thomas said, all, all of us political junkies, which I know some of you are secret political junkies, some of you are outright political junkies, and I've noted that. <laughs> but we are looking at North Carolina big time. North Carolina is very indicative of the way that the rest of the country will change on November 3rd. So what does that even mean, though? You may be saying, all right, no, this no. Year, I'm not a pol politician. I'm not a political person. What does it matter if the Senate flips? And if you could change the slide, Marine, I want to talk about a few key areas that um, that are highly influenced by the way that the parties have control. So if you look at this chart, all that we were trying to do is on the very left-hand column, so the bolded letters, these are the potential policy priorities that may or may not be addressed over the next uh two months and then over the next year depending on how November 3rd shakes out. So the first column is the status quo. What if nothing changes? What if President Trump is reelected and the Senate doesn't flip? We have a Republican executive, a Republican Senate and a blue house. What if the Senate flips, but the executive doesn't? That is we have the next column is a blue house and a blue Senate and President Trump. The final column is all blue, a blue wave, if you will. Now, we tried to get together and speculate what might happen should any of those things occur based on policies that are our priorities. So first of all, just kind of the first row, just talking about the general potential for policy passage. You know we've been struggling and you've been struggling as well. In the current environment, the status quo that we have right now, a Republican president and a Republican Senate and a Democratic House has not produced a whole lot of movement when it comes to uh, creating policy or passing policy. We have languishing transportation priorities. We have languishing infrastructure priorities. We even now have a languishing uh, stimulus package that's just kind of sitting there. So that's why we think that if it maintains the status quo after November 3rd, it's highly unlikely that we'll see a lot of big policy packages passing. If there is a blue Senate and a blue House, and again, a Republican president, we actually think that there's some potential for the president, who is a savvy businessman, who is very engaged in the business community, who is very, very attuned to ensuring um, a healthy and thriving economy, would be very receptive to packages passed by the blue House and the blue Senate as long as it did satisfy economic objectives um, that his current administration has laid out. So we think that it's likely that some, some legislation might move if it is a Republican, a Republican president and a, a, a blue Congress. If it is an all blue uh, beltway, I, I'm kind of getting flashbacks of 2017 when it was an all red beltway. You, if you recall correctly with me, um, you know, we kind of saw all red folks join in a red house, a red Senate, a red White House. And there was policy just clipping along. <laughs> there was 
bills being written, bills being passed, things moving. Um, and I don't think I, 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 I don't think anything will be different if it's all blue. I think all of the Democrats all together will take advantage of, of synergy, of sameness inside of the Beltway, and they will start writing packages as quickly as quickly as we can blink. And I think that's that's something that we're very cognizant of because we need to hold on to that bullet train and make sure our priorities are a part of that. So let me really quickly turn the page to stimulus. A lot of folks are saying, well, Emily, the stimulus didn't happen. Can you go back a slide? The stimulus didn't happen. Um, that's the current reality that we're working with right now after last night. What's the potential in each of these scenarios for future stimulus to happen? Well, I think it's important that we separate the two notions that are inside of the stimulus, fiscal policy from monetary policy. So fiscal policy, if you recall, is money. It's cash money. It's free money. It's coronavirus relief fund. It's education stabilization fund. It is um, FEMA, uh, FEMA fund. It is, it is money that's being sent out that doesn't need to be repaid. Okay. That's the fiscal policy part. That's the coronavirus relief fund. That's different than the monetary policy that was a part of the CARES Act. The monetary policy is the money that was given out by the Federal Reserve Bank, but needs to be paid back in certain circumstances. So the monetary policy is like the PPPs and the corporate secondary purchase funds and, and also the municipal liquidity facility falls in that monetary policy category. So I think there's going to be a split between Republicans and Democrats fundamentally on whether or not fiscal policy is even a good idea. A good conservative, cons fiscal conservative perspective would say, look, we're not just going to give out money for free. <laughs> we need to make sure that we're focusing on the markets because the markets create stability in our space. So I want to turn it over to Maureen to talk about the potential for fiscal stimulus. Thank you, Emily. And much like Emily started off by explaining that fiscal policy is like free money, basically. And as you have seen in real time, it's been a tug of war this whole year. So debt on arrival might be the perfect term to describe it as of now. But when looking at a blue Senate, there is certainly going to be a lot of pressure towards the executive branch in allocating and pushing more federal funding through agencies such as FEMA, for example, in populating grants offering more direct aid, emergency aid, and basically just enabling a more flexible flow of money in the sense where it's written into the legislation. You take a quick trip to the Treasury, secure the cash, and then pour that cash out through the federal government. Fiscal policy will really be all about the injection of money, and the pressure will really be on to deliver additional aid towards programs such as the Coronavirus Relief Fund, or as Emily mentioned earlier, the Education Stabilization Fund, it would sort of be like a done deal kind of attitude. And Michael Thomas will now tell us a little about monetary policy. Thank you, Maureen. Uh, a, a topic close to my heart. Um, monetary policy is, is what we're talking about that. We're talking about, as Emily uh, had said, uh, lending money out, the PPP, the MLF, uh, but my old school association with it, it goes all the way back to my my first uh, macroeconomics class, and, and that's interest rates. Monetary policy, think about interest rates. 
uh, my professors as an economics major, uh, they instilled in me a reverence for the Federal Reserve. The people who work there are priests and changing interest rates is black magic. Uh, things have changed uh, quite a bit since then. And what we have, we've gotten more comfortable over the years with accessing uh, fiscal stimulus, going to the treasury, writing bills or moving money around and using them for cash injections, whether that be you know, through grants, through money in your hand, through supporting loan programs, doesn't matter. That's just money from the treasury. Since um, really uh, the modern uh, uh, economy has sort of spun itself up in the late 90s and early 2000s, we have decided that there is uh, an endless depth to the wallet of the treasury and we're happy to you know use it to spend on whatever it is we, we can't seem to find uh, uh the buck there monetary policy is a little bit different and and allow me to explain monetary policy is originally designed uh to lower and raise interest rates depending on what you want the economy to do do you want more businesses taking out money and injecting it into the economy through investment or do you want to tackle inflation? So now that I got that out of the way, it is an excellent tool and it has been used many times uh, to great efficacy. The problem now is that for it to be successful, they have to actually be able to move interest rates to one degree or to one direction or the other. But right now, interest rates are literally between 0.25% and 0.75%. They simply cannot get any lower for what you call your discount window rate. That's basically your, your, your lender of last resort for uh, the bank that has, you know, they're at the end of their line, they have to go to the Fed to get money. So all interest rates, as all of you know, come from that. What happens when there has to be a modulating of the economy and we cannot cut the interest rates to spur uh, economic activity, which is perhaps the most, again, effective and popular way presidents and the Congress has stimulated the economy. Lower interest rates makes money cheaper. Banks are encouraged to loan it out. Businesses are encouraged to spend it as a result. Seems like a more natural and organic way than simply putting money directly into people's hands. I believe that both parties prefer to use that kind of tool because it allows them to say that they're being practical. It allows them to say they're being responsible, accountable. They're not just giving money away. Uh, I mean, obviously there's a greater discussion there, but not the point. Both parties will probably try to go there first. The MLF exists uh, and there is still plenty of discussion around it. I think being such a distinct uh, program, that's probably going to, to sort of, people are gonna be talking about how can we change what's already here? And we already heard that, that echoed uh, from, from both sides in some cases. I think what that'll end up lending to is either burgeoning or cutting back of some of the uh, programs that may be existing now to help you know, pur purchase different bonds or, or get things going. Um, and, all, and all of this is dependent on what kind of, you know, municipal bond market or what kind of interest rate market in general is gonna be on the other side of this election. Um, and, and that's, that's again, too crystal ball -y to, to really uh, uh, put anything on paper. And how does this attach to uh, the next uh, row down there, comprehensive infrastructure package? I, I was thinking about that for the past about half an hour or so, just in the background of my mind, because uh, I, to handle uh, covering infrastructure uh, when it when it comes up. And for the first time in my nearly three years with GFOA, I don't hear anything about infrastructure uh, in an election year, no less. Uh, this occurred to me like today and my mind is blown. Um, 
Does that mean infrastructure is not going to be coming up? Does that mean uh, we are going to need to mount a giant advocacy campaign to even have them discuss it? Probably not. I believe, as I've said before to all of you on these calls, that the surface transportation and uh, water resources uh, reauthorization bills are so popular and Congress is so proud of them uh, that they they use that as sort of their kick the can down the road. Like, all right, we'll make sure these grant programs are still fully funded, good to go. We'll get to that infrastructure package program. If there is a blue wave, um, there may be so many things in on the agenda that we'll never actually see someone, you know, roll out a big comprehensive infrastructure bill. You may see something where we're passing another relief bill or we're passing a reform bill and we're going to attach this and that to it. Uh, it may just be that busy. I mean, when you have conversations at high levels about stacking the Supreme Court, like that is, we are 20 years away from being beyond the pale. And, and, and that's for somebody who grew up in the 90s. Uh, so what kind of agenda in terms of legislation they put out right away? That's tough. And I, and I, and I can't wait to see. I legitimately thought i was so sure that there was at least a coin flip over infrastructure getting done within the first year of president trump's election i sincerely believe that as a builder uh, he will want to make those connections and he would want to be friendly with democrats uh, but that did not come to be we tried um i again I've only, i'm almost realizing in real time with everybody here that infrastructure has not been been discussed at great length during an election year uh, so I would expect that to come around, um, honestly, more likely if it's a blue Senate and uh, President Trump is still in office. Uh, I can imagine, uh, you know, wanting to bring people to the table then. Building is something that he is comfortable with, something that he wanted before very, very badly, something we all want as well, because we've, we've all read the reports a million times that we've, we've shown you about the crumbling infrastructure of America. Uh, so my, my prognosticating there, uh, again, real-time prognosticating, if the Senate sticks and there's no White House, I think that probably sets up maybe the best uh, uh, you know, breeding ground for a good infrastructure package. But if it's a full-on blue wave, uh, since they will just have total grips, both hands on the wheels, it's just, it's tough to imagine what they would, how they're gonna triage this, this giant list of priorities uh, uh, for their platform. Um, anyway, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and pass this baton, uh, I believe back over to Emily or, or Mike got on. That's right. And uh, remember, too, the Democrats actually have a transportation package. It's called the Invest in America Act. Right. Of course. When we talked about it, it, it is a cornucopia of bond provisions. So that could be a very interesting conversation, uh, I think, going forward. Now, what's most important about infrastructure? <laughs> what builds infrastructure? Who shoulders 75% of the cost of infrastructure? State and local governments with the issuance of municipal bonds. And I think what's important is that obviously we have a lot of municipal bond provisions that we have are in support of. We would love to see rest, full restoration of the tax exempt uh, advance refunding of municipal bonds. We'd love to see the increase of the bank qualified debt cap to be increased. Uh, we would love to see uh, uh, private activity bonds cap increased. We would love to see a lot of bond provisions come back. Um, but the one thing that we know that's true and that the important thing about this row in particular is that we have supporters of the municipal bond on both sides. We have opponents of the municipal bond on both sides. I often have to remind folks that President Obama in his last budget put a 28% cap 
on the municipal bond tax exemption. So I'm not vilifying, I think, the previous president, but I also think that we need to make sure we stay on guard because sometimes we need to make sure we need to make sure that the provisions that are being advanced that are specifically regarding the municipal bond, we need to pay attention to. We need to be alert. And I can guarantee you we will be on alert. Um, but last but not least, I'd love to touch on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 2017. That is something that has really stopped our efforts on bringing back advanced refunding when it comes to the Republican Senate. The Republican Senate is very much uh, eager to hold on to the provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. They need to keep the corporate uh, tax rate where it is. They would love to keep the elimination of the advance for funding. There are a lot of elements of Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 that Republicans in the Senate believe is working. So there's no way that the 2017 Tax Act will go away if it remains the status quo. But if it's a blue Senate and a blue House, I think what we're going to see is there are parts of the 2017 Tax Act that have expiration dates or sunset dates. Uh, in 2025, those sunset dates are going to go into practice and you're going to see a sunset of the corporate tax rates. You're going to see a sunset of the deductibility, that $10,000 deductibility of state and local taxes or the SALT cap. So you'll see those things kind of disappear. And I think the blue Senate and the blue house are gonna work very hard to make sure the executive understands they want those sunsets to take place. Now, last but not least, the final corner of the matrix, if it is a blue wave, they're gonna wave bye-bye to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. They're gonna say, nope, we're done with this. They're going to eliminate in full anything that even uh, kind of looks or smells like the 2017 Tax Act in favor of their priorities, which are have been clearly outlined through the HEROES Act, through the Build America Act, the Infrastructure Act, all of those things that we've seen passed by the House. So just wanted to put those things into perspective for you. Those things are really important, I think, coming up in January and certainly between now and January. But one of the most monumental things happened that happened in the stimulus efforts happened last night. So I want to turn it over to Michael Bellarmino right now. Thank you, Emily, and uh, happy federal fiscal new year. It's only October 2nd, so it's still appropriate to say that. But um, it's funny you say monumental because unfortunately we don't have a stimulus deal. Um, so yesterday, as, as we, we alluded to last week, you know, there were some discussions that were still going on uh, as far as trying to reach a deal and, of course, um, you know, the other thing that that Congress needed to do was take care of funding for the FY 2021. And, you know, we saw the last minute deal. The Senate, uh, within just with, with just hours to spare on Wednesday, voted to, to pass the continuing resolution. Um, but it was only till December 11th. And so, of course, that's something that they'll need to revisit. So as it relates to the stimulus package, Again, there were some discussions, you know, with a couple of things that were going to start happening this week. One of the big things that, of course, as you all have seen on the news, is uh, over 30,000 airline employees furloughed. And so there were many who thought that this would have, you know, provided some sort of like really strong motivation for some sort of deal to be made in order to try to stave off some of those furloughs. But uh, unfortunately, you know, as, as talks continued, we know the White House was willing to move up to one and a half trillion, which was certainly higher than what Senator or Majority Leader McConnell put forward a few weeks ago. 
Uh, on Monday, Speaker Pelosi put out an updated version of the HEROES Act. It was essentially just a pared down version of the bill that the House had already passed back in May. Um, this bill uh, totals just over $2.2 uh, They actually just voted on it last night as well. So it was passed primarily along partisan lines, even though about, let's say, rough, I think roughly uh, 18 Democrats actually uh, voted against the bill. So what was in there? I, you know, this was probably just another marker, of course, that you know, if talks continue, which right now they are definitely stalled, um, you know, what, what is still at least deemed important by leadership in the House. So it does continue the state and local or additional funding for state and local governments, although it cuts in half what they originally provided in the HEROES Act. So it was a little over $436 billion that they provide for state and local governments. Uh, no surprise, there's an addition, you know, they still uh, look to provide additional money for testing, funding for PPP, as well as restoring the enhanced, the federal enhancement to the unemployment benefits, airline assistance, as well as uh, also expands the use of current coronavirus funding that's out there in the CRF. What's not in the bill that the House did, again, another, you know, not, not, not a surprise, but the liability protections, which is one of the hallmarks for Majority Leader McConnell that he wants to include in, in any deal uh, was not in that pared down version uh, of, of the updated HEROES Act. Again, they passed the bill. So, you know, many might ask, well, what's the point of that? Well, even though the, the original HEROES Act was passed in, in May, um, uh, unfortunately, the shelf life of legislation uh, tends to be very short. And so in this instance, one of the things that in the event that a deal was not going to be reached, uh, leaders in the House felt that it was going to be important to at least demonstrate that they acted. So, of course, as now they're all they've all headed home, they're going to be home for the next few weeks, uh, or the final weeks before the election. They wanted to be able to point to, um, you know, that they actually did something and, you know, they were willing to at least move down on the, the total cost of the package from three point. Four billion down to two point two billion. So again, more or less for optics, uh, it, it, given the situation that uh, a deal for a stimulus package was not reached. Will talks continue? Maybe. Um, you know, certainly because of what happened or what's happening in the airline industry, that certainly you know again tries does provide some impetus. But there there's already some talks that potentially maybe they. It may just try to work on a standalone package to, to provide some additional aid for for uh, for airline for the airline industry. So we're going to have to watch to see what's going to happen there. Um, what happens, uh, you know, after November third? Well, you know, of course, it's a lame duck session. I'll jump first to the Supreme Court showdown because we right now, uh, as you all know, the the Supreme Court nominee was named last Saturday, um, Amy Coney Barrett, and. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, who has jurisdiction over the, the nomination hearings, has already slated to begin the, the hearing process on, the, on October 12th with a potential vote at a committee uh, by October 22nd. So a fairly, you know, fairly efficient timeline. Now, what we you know, don't know, of course, at this point is when a vote uh, on the Senate floor could happen um, and is certainly unlikely to happen anytime before the election. Will the election change any of that that timeline of that process? Um, it's anybody's guess. Uh, you know, I think we've all seen how things have gone this year, and your guess it could be just as good as anyone else's. And so, 
And the lame duck session, you know, of course, you, you've already heard uh, my colleagues kind of uh, a little bit of speculation of what could happen. And, and that's really where, where we're just stuck at right now. It's, you know, important to remember, too, that, you know, um, depending on, on ultimately who has control of, of each chamber, as well as the White House, is going to drive uh, what could happen. Now, what is interesting, of course, what makes this a little more interesting, uh, once we get into the lame duck session, remember the, the funding right now for the federal government only goes till December 11th. And so uh, they'll have to, you know, either pass another short-term, you know, uh, funding gap, or they're going to pass, uh, you know, the funding bills that's going to fund the, the federal government for the remainder of FY 2021. So. Could we see some drama again come um, come December 11? I mean, I honestly think we're probably going to see drama before that. You know, with the elections, of course, depending on how close the the, the results are um, and the contentious transition. You know, we, you know, we we've seen some of the comments that have already been made. Whether it's going to happen or not, again, who knows? It, it really will fall on how the numbers are looking uh, or the results are looking once we get to get to November, but. Um, we all know that's kind of already in the wings, uh, and hopefully, you know, as, as we look at what potentially could happen in that lame duck, you know, we're always going to have that one in a million mentality that, you know, there's always a chance. Um, and so there's going to be, you know, potentially one or two trains that may be leaving uh, the station uh, before December 31st, uh, of course, as the 116th is heading out. And uh, we'll always be looking for some opportunities to attach uh, some baggage onto those trains. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> all right. And of course, who pays the price in all of this? Um, you know, everybody does, but, if, but more so for us, you know, state and local governments do pay the price. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that we're going to continue to watch, and, and we already, is, is for those of you who, who watched the hearing uh, where we had Mary Ann G and Pat McCoy testify, you know, Kent Heitschu even noted um, that, you know, the Fed is watching because they're seeing some potential warning signals. Mark Zandi even commented on that. I think, you know, um, in light of, you know, still the ongoing pandemic response and, and, and still some of the uncertainty that's going around out there as far as, you know, when are we really going to start seeing, you know, the, re the, the economy um, or at least those revenues that, that some have already identified are, are, are you know, hurting and will continue to hurt. When will those rebound? Um, we're going to continue to pay the price, and that's that will be part of the message that we're going to continue uh, sharing. Uh, as you know, the Hill Force offices are still reaching out to us, just trying to get a sense, and they're reaching out to us. They're reaching out to you know our sister organizations that represent state and local governments, just trying to get a sense of of what's what's happening out there. So. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't resonated enough to where they've been able to, to come to a deal. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean we're going to stop uh, sharing that message. So with that, I will turn it back over to Emily. Yeah, and we think three key metrics tell the story to those congresspersons. Yeah. From a macro perspective, we have what we have as an aggregate number, but the more that you do outreach and you can do outreach, even if you're in a state that may flip, um, this outreach is especially critical as soon as they hit office, as soon as they get elected, so that they understand the urgency, because in the lame duck session, it's possible something might not happen. So one of the key statistics is what are the budget shortfalls? And budget shortfalls is, you know, um, I think a, 
uh, a common term that we use, um, but it's not, I mean, it, essentially what it communicates is the budget shortfalls as you are preparing for 2021 are in excess of other recessions that we've experienced in our lifetime, the 2001 recession and the great recession of, of 2007. So there's significant shortfalls expected for um, for state governments, but also for local governments. And in the next slide, what you'll see another key metric that they need to know is what are the challenges in revenue collection? What are the actuals that you're seeing? So we've talked a lot with uh, members across the country about expected shortfalls in Q2 versus actual shortfalls. Um, I think the actuals are what Congress is looking for. If you have actuals that did not meet or exceeded um, the shortfalls that you predicted, or rather the declines that you predicted, I think that's information that they need to know. So that's another really important thing. So not just the budgeted or the expected, but also the actuals. They need to they need to feel like they did something, but then in addition, what else do they need to do? And then the last key metric is a is a kind of an economic uh, perspective. In the next slide, what you see is what is the shape of the recovery? So everybody's arguing all kinds of different letters, U's, W's, V's, K's, all of these things. Well, what is the economic recovery expectation for you and your jurisdiction? I think that they need to know that the expectation of Moody's is not until 2020, the end of 2021, it might not even meet. Uh, near pre-recession levels. For you, what are your expectations in your local economy? And that certainly will change depending if you are a hospitality area, if you are a, an area, a, a coastal community, if you are, I mean, every one thing that we try to make sure that we communicate to Congress is you're trying to compare apples and oranges, but, but they need to know what their local governments are feeling and seeing right now. And in an aggregate, it's nice to hear that, that it's a V-shaped and that you know recovery will happen, blah, 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 blah. But if they hear it from you about your jurisdiction, that has a, a tremendous amount of power. And the most important part is to tag them right after November 3rd and make sure that they know that. Um, the final thing uh, we wanted to address really quickly is the coronavirus relief fund. We have some new and updated information that we'd love to share with you. Noreen, take it away. Sorry, I, I guess I forgot how to unmute myself. Um, so, you know, CRF has been a hot topic since it made it into the massive $2 trillion CARES Act, and it has been at the center of much controversy, drama, tears of joy, tears of frustration, confusion, basically every emotion the human mind can comprehend while on this roller coaster ride. And while one may think that by October 2nd, today, the subject could have been exhausted, I don't think it has. As most of you know firsthand, this is a party that has been going on nonstop, but the stop is to come abruptly on December 30th, because that's right, we are going to address the elephant in the room, which is the deadline to spend CRF funds, December 30th. And to really build on this point, I would like to turn everyone's attention to the CRF research project we conducted in August. Now, for weeks, we have been teasing the final report on the coronavirus relief fund, the research and the results it produced. It's in the final stages of publishing, but we're going to provide you with a small sneak peek, just a trailer before the movie to tie in with this entire conversation regarding where we are and honestly, where we're going, especially with this upcoming deadline. 
so we just go to the next slide if my mouse would work there we go so i'm just going to very quickly show you three slides which i feel of course this is this isn't all of the results we have a lot to show but this was some of some of our most telling some blah. <laughs> this is some of our most important research from the project so how clear was the Department of Treasury's guidance for your state or jurisdiction in determining the use of CRF funds? As you can see, there's just a huge divide there. And on the left side, regarding the extent of the clarity provided by the Treasury on the use of CRF funds, respondents tied at 40%, perceiving the guidance to be somewhat clear and somewhat unclear. Comments predominantly indicated the ambiguous nature of the guidance and FAQs as incomplete and conflicting. Respondents noted that while some parts of the guidance were clear, other parts were unclear. And we actually got a quote from um, one of the respondents saying, the ongoing change in guidance is slowing down our, pro our response and effectiveness. And you know, the confusion here is no surprise. It makes total sense given the role in guidance and updates to the FAQs, which I believe at um, present is a total of six times, but are we really counting anymore? Um, move on to the next slide. There we go. Sorry, I'm feeling like some freezing on my end. So at the beginning of August, if you look at the graph on the left, the scenario of how much of CRF funds at that point had been obligated versus how much had actually been spent by prime recipients at that point is quite telling. You can see the clear shift in the graph on the, on the left. The yellow bars are obligated funds, whereas the blue bars are funds actually spent by that point. And it was largely reflected by respondents stating that there was just so much uncertainty on how to spend the funds. It's really no surprise that by August, zero to 25% and 25 to 50%, those, those were largely the, where the funds were. Much of the funds were not being spent. And then on the right side, has the CRF been an effective tool in assisting your state and local jurisdiction respond to the COVID-19 pandemic? This again was pretty divided. 63% yes, 35% said somewhat, and 2% said no. You know, collectively, everyone is, you know, across the board agreeing that money is money and money helps. But I think it's going to be very clear when you see the report yourself that respondents really said that this division is coming from just, again, going back to prior concerns, you know, this con these constant updates, the inconsistencies, the uncertainties, it's really hard to determine, is this an effective tool? I mean, the money helps, but how much has it helped in really pushing, you know, pushing these problems out of our way during this insane time? And finally, this, this is the one. This is what we have all been waiting for. Would your state or jurisdiction benefit from additional federal aid? And as you can see, 91% said yes. And I, I just keep saying the graph speaks for itself. We're just gonna ignore that 8% not sure and that 1% no. <laughs> the, the money is welcome. The money is absolutely welcome. And I'm going to pass it over to Emily Brock now. Thanks, Maureen. It really is a sharp looking um, document. It should be done uh, early next week. Um, and also, I, I, it sounds like some of you might not have been able to see the slides. I'm certainly happy to share those with you. We'll make sure to shoot those out to the whole group. Um, last but not least, the reason that we're focusing on the Coronavirus Relief Fund is because it's very likely that's the model or the template 
that any future stimulus might flow through. So we wanna make sure that we try to urge the treasury to create the fund, create the structure that is not constantly changing, that's not constantly evolving. There's no questions about eligibility of expenditures. Um, and so we're gonna use this document very strategically with the United States Treasury to try to have them better understand um, the, 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 that we need a structure in place in order to access these funds, to use these funds effectively, to create a mechanism that would allow for us to recover from COVID-19. Um, we are at the point where we've, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Thank you so much for your attention. Now, somebody did send me <laughs> a chat in the chat box and he sent it privately and I appreciate that. But there is a, um, a combination or a permutation, I can't remember which, a permutation that we did not address in our matrix. What would happen if it's a Biden presidency, a Republican Senate, and a Democratic House? <laughs> that, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, how, yeah, how did all of this not... Hmm. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> so assuming that that is going to happen, Remember what the House controls. According to the United States Constitution, the House controls the purse. They have the power of the purse. We learned that from, um, you know, Schoolhouse Rocks. We know what they do. So they're in charge of the money. The Senate is in charge of the courts. They can make the court appointments, carte blanche, and they can move forward. Now, the president is probably going to be leaning very hard for any kind of uh, uh, democratic leaning legislation, but it is going to be a hard line Senate. It's going to be a very stubborn Senate, just as it has been a very stubborn house because the house has been sort of the only blue one inside of the circle this time. If the Senate is the only red one inside of the circle, I can guarantee you that there's going to be some hardliners holding on to 2017 tax act legacy and they're also going to be hardlining on as much stuff as they can to preserve the tax code that they have a control over. So that is um, an excellent point. Thank you for the anonymous tip that I forgot that permutation, but we can all think about that and how we'd expand the, the matrix as we um, all join together on November 3rd, biting our nails together. So um, thanks everyone for joining. If there's any other questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We love this stuff. We think about it all the time. Um, and we know you do too secretly. So let's, uh, <laughs> please feel free to reach out. We love being in touch with you and we will talk to you again next week. Thanks everybody.